Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. As we come through the Gospel of Matthew together, today we land on verse 31 through 35 of Matthew chapter 26. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and for allowing us to come to it and read it. Lord, help us to see. Give us eyes to see. And as we've often asked, Lord, I pray it again that you would show us Christ and that you would lift up the name of Christ in this place to the highest place in our affections. Lord Jesus, that you would be on your throne as you are, but you would give us eyes to see. Lord, I pray that every idol would fall as we see the glory of Christ. That every wicked desire, Lord, would be extinguished as our desire for Christ is increased. Lord, help us, please. Holy Spirit, help us this morning. We love you and we love your word. Revive our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So the place where we're at, Matthew 26, verse 31 through 35, a little bit about the context, the cross, the crucifixion, the cross is coming. It's right around the corner. The Lord's Supper that points to, to Christ crucified has just been instituted. The emotions have been low. The emotions have been high. It says in verse 22 that there was a great sorrow that they felt because Jesus said that one of you is going to betray me, speaking about Judas. And there was a sorrow, this sadness that fell over the disciples. Jesus institutes the first Lord's Supper. In verse 30, it seems like things end on a high note. Look at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So it ends in singing, it ends in worship and praise. It seems to have ended on a high note here. And what Jesus is about to do is bring them back to a somber reality. He's going to make them aware of something that they're about to do. They don't know it about themselves, but Jesus is going to make them aware of something that they are about to do. This is proof that Jesus knows more about you than you know about yourself. And that ought to affect your life, your whole life. He knows more about you than you even know about yourself. And he's about to reveal something to them. Let's read verse 31 through 35 together. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So here we've got this back and forth conversation. Jesus speaks something to his disciples. Peter responds. Jesus speaks something directly to Peter. Peter responds and the disciples agree with Peter. Let's look again at the first thing that Jesus says here. Look at it, verse 31. Understand what Jesus says to his disciples. Then Jesus said to them, you will all, he's talking to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's verse 31 and verse 32. Don't you believe that these words put a damper on the singing? They're singing, they're singing worship, and then Jesus looks at them and says, All of you are going to fall away because of me this night. So I want you to think about this. What? According to verse 31 and 32, what does Jesus know? He knows. What does he know is about to come? He knows that he's about to be abandoned by his friends. He says, all of you will fall away. He says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The sheep will be scattered. His friends are about to abandon him. They're not going to stay by his side. They're not going to make a heroic last stand. They're not going to lay down their lives for him, but they're going to act like they don't even know him. They're going to live as if they don't even know this man. They're going to abandon Christ. Now, this would have stung Jesus deeply. You remember we read a couple weeks back Psalm 55 of the way Jesus felt when Judas betrayed him. If it was an enemy, I could have bared it, but this was my companion, this was my friend. This hurt, this stung. You imagine how much more it stung when he says, all of them. Jesus knows it's all of you are going to fall away from me. All of you are going to abandon me this night. They would go on to leave him in his lowest moment. They're going to promise, they're going to promise, we'll be by your side even to death. But they're not going to keep their word. They're not going to stay by his side. Now, Jesus knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is about to happen. Now, would it surprise you? Like, what do you think Jesus' next words should be? Would it surprise you if his next words were, stay away from me? You're lying to me. You're cowards. You're going to betray me. Stay away from me. Would it surprise you if that was his next sentence? And it wouldn't. It shouldn't surprise you. What if you knew something like this beyond the shadow of a doubt? What if you knew something like this about your friends? That your closest friends, that, that if you could just know that, that they are about to abandon you. They're about to betray you. You're going to be suffering and they're not going to stand by your side. They're going to act like they don't even know you. What if you knew that was going to happen with your friends? How would you respond? Would you stay away from them? Would you avoid them at all costs? 
But how does Jesus respond to this knowledge of a coming betrayal, a coming abandonment? How does he, how does he respond? He tells them, you're all going to fall away. But verse 32 says, but when I rise, I'll meet you in Galilee. You're about to leave me in the pit like Joseph's brothers left him in that pit. You're going to leave me like that, but that's okay. I'll go before you. We'll be, re we'll be reunited in Galilee. This is kindness. I hope you see mercy here. Jesus knew everything about his disciples. He even knew the worst of the worst, their lowest place, the most despicable things that they could do. He knows all of it. And yet what we see here is kindness. He loved them to the end. He knew they would betray him. And yet Jesus still moves towards the cross. The Gospel of John tells us that the words that Jesus speaks... Right after Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. The words that he speaks right after that in John chapter 14 is, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you're going to be also. This is love. On what, based on what condition... Does Jesus love these disciples? What is it that he sees in them that, that, makes, him, that makes him want to lay down his life for these disciples? Why, why does he do it? On what condition? They're spineless. They're cowards. They don't show love to Christ. They reject him and walk away from him, abandon him. Why, what, what is the, why does he love them? This is unconditional love. This is love just because Christ loves them, just because he chose to love them. He loves them. And if you think about this for yourself, Jesus knows everything about you as well. If you're sitting here this morning, you're a, a disciple of Christ, Jesus knows everything about you, the worst of the worst about you. And I wonder if anybody needs to hear that this morning, that Jesus knows everything about you and what? Still went to the cross for you. He knows more about your sin than you even know about it yourself. And in love, he still went to the cross for you. Now, what else do we see here that Jesus knows? We see in verse 31 that Jesus knows Scripture. You see that? He says, you're all, you're all going to fall away today. Verse 31 says, for it is written. And he quotes something from the Old Testament in Zechariah 13. He says, for it is written. So Jesus roots what he knows in the written word of God. Think about that. The omniscient one that knows all things. The one, the one whose knowledge is rooted in omniscient. He knows everything. He appeals to Scripture as the basis of his knowledge. He loves Scripture. We've seen this all over the Gospels, especially all over the Gospel of Matthew, that over and over again, he appeals to Scripture as how he knows something. I know this, for it is written. I know this, written words of God. He loves Scripture. He esteems Scripture. Jesus delighted in Scripture. He was the greatest fulfillment of Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. 
Oh, how I delight in your commandments. Now, how much more ought we, that we're the non-omniscient ones, how much more ought we to root everything we know, everything we think, everything we believe, everything we do in written words from God? He knows Scripture. May we be a people that know Scripture as well. What else do we see he knows here? Again, verse 31, Jesus knows he's the shepherd. Verse 31 says, strike the shepherd and the the flock, the sheep will be scattered. He knows that he is this shepherd. Now remember, the word shepherd here, it's not just a metaphor for I'm one that leads the people or I'm, I'm the one that gives guidance to people. It's not just a metaphor. To be the shepherd or to claim to be the shepherd is to claim to be the messianic king. You're the messiah king. Now we know that because when you read your Old Testament, the kings were considered the shepherds of Israel. Over and over again that connection is made. And the ultimate shepherd that's to come is that messiah, that messiah king shepherd. We can see that even in the gospel. We saw this at the very beginning. In Matthew chapter 2 verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you, Bethlehem, from you shall come a ruler, a king. And what will he do? Who will shepherd my people Israel. So to claim to be the shepherd is to to claim to be that promised ruler, that promised king, that promised Messiah. When Jesus looked at the people and he said, It says he had compassion because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. That doesn't mean they were just people that needed guidance. They were people without their Messiah. And so here Jesus sees himself as that promised Messiah king, that shepherd. What else does Jesus know here? Jesus knows that he will be stricken. He will be the stricken shepherd. Verse 31 again says, I will strike, I will strike the shepherd. Who will Jesus be struck by? Who will Jesus be struck by? Will he be struck by the Jews? He certainly will. Verse 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? He'll be struck by the Jews. Will he be struck by the Romans? The answer is yes to that as well. Chapter 27, verse 27 says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him not to worship They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Yes, the Romans struck him. They hung him on a tree crucified him, tortured him. 
But Matthew 26, verse 31, in our passage of Scripture this morning, it tells us something deeper than the Jews striking Jesus or deeper than the Romans striking Jesus. Look at it again, verse 31. It says, I will strike the shepherd. Who is the I? I will strike, strike the shepherd. Who is the I here that strikes Jesus? If you go back to the verse being quoted, Zechariah chapter 13. Let me read verse 1 to get a little context here. Zechariah 13 verse 1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So this chapter is talking about a fountain being open to cleanse people from sin, to cleanse them from uncleanness. It sounds like the best hymn ever written. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. A fountain's going to be open. And then the verse that Jesus quotes here, as we get a little closer to it, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me declares the Lord of hosts. Who's speaking here? The Lord of hosts is talking here. Yahweh is speaking here. I will strike my shepherd. Who's the eye? Yahweh is the eye. Listen, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Yahweh calls Jesus my shepherd. The man who stands next to me, that's intimacy, my associate, my companion. The man who stands next to me. And then here's what Jesus quotes. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who struck Jesus? It was the Jews, it was the Romans, but ultimately it's God that struck the shepherd. Why? The prophet Isaiah tells us that the Lord, Yahweh, was laying on this shepherd the iniquity of us all. And it says, it says in, that, in that chapter that's so famous, Isaiah 53, he laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all, and Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. That's why. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's why. That same chapter says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yahweh struck him. Yahweh crushed him. That same prophet said that, that he's stricken smitten by God and afflicted. There's a hymn by that name that says it like this. Tell me, you who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But listen, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. And Jesus knows this is coming. He says it, strike the shepherd. He knows that it's coming. Not just beatings and torture and spitting and lashing, but the wrath of God being poured out on him instead of his people. He knows that it's coming. He knows that it's coming for who? 
Why is he doing this? And it's one thing to theoretically die for sinners, but what do you mean I'm going to die for sinners? You mean you're going to die for the ones, these sheep that are about to be scattered? These ones that are about to betray you, abandon you, not stand by your side? And he doesn't turn away. He doesn't, turn, he doesn't change his mind. He sets his face like flint and he goes to the cross for people just like this that are in the midst of abandoning him. What else does Jesus know from verse 31 and 32? What else does he know? Verse 32, he knows that he is going to rise from the dead. Look at it. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's going to rise from the dead. This is, this is the point. You can't miss this. A, a dead Savior can't save you. He is, he is risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead. He knew it was coming, and that means he's alive, and he's still alive right now. He knows everything going on here today because he's alive. He walks among the lampstands. He sees. He knows. He's risen. He's alive. This is the point. He's not dead. And according to our passage, or according to verse 32, He's willing to reunite with sinners that fail him miserably. I will go before you to Galilee. What words to attach to the end of that? You're all going to fall away. You're all going to deny me. But I'll see you in Galilee. There's a phrase in Romans 4 or 5 that says, it says, Him who justifies the ungodly. Think about that phrase. He justifies what kind of people? The ungodly. I can just hear our brother Colby Berry in my head saying, the ungodly, that makes me a good candidate, as he would say. Are you ungodly? Are you the ungodly that Jesus, by his blood, he dies for, and then he justifies, makes you clean, makes you innocent? See, Jesus said he didn't come for those that are already innocent. Those that are healthy, he came for the sick, the ungodly, the unrighteous. He came to justify them. Now we need to get to the disciples' response, or Peter's response. But before we do, I want to say one more thing about the glory of Jesus that we see right here very clearly. One more thing about the glory of Jesus here, and it's this. No one ever rested in the sovereign will of the Father like Jesus did. No one ever rested in the sovereign will of the Father like Jesus did. You ever been through something so hard, so difficult, so painful, that you either had to move towards bitterness and hard-heartedness, or you had to rest in the sovereign will of God, even if you don't understand? You ever been in a situation like that where no one ever did this? like Jesus did, rested in the sovereign will of the Father. Think about this, our passage this morning. Think about it. Jesus sees something hard in Scripture. The sheep are going to be scattered. My friends are going to abandon me, betray me, deny me, act like they don't even know me. And not, not only that, I'm going to be stricken, come under a horrendous death. He sees something hard in Scripture that he knows is coming. No complaints. 
No bitterness. Just resigned to the will of the Father. Trusting his Father's perfect will. Resting in his Father's perfect goodness. Even though there's pain. He just says, I'll see y'all in Galilee. I'll go before y'all to Galilee. Now if you're here today and you're in the middle of an extremely difficult situation. Something's hard. Something is so hard. I want to encourage you to get your eyes on Jesus, the one, the one who rested in the sovereign will of his Father like no one else. Get your eyes on him. No one has ever suffered like Christ. No one has ever come under such hardship and suffering like Christ. And you might say something like, yeah, but I've been abandoned. I've been lied to. I've been betrayed. And that might be true, but listen, go to the next paragraph. You have never had a Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, it says Jesus was burdened, deeply sorrowful, even to death. Why? Because he knew that the cup of God's wrath was about to be poured out on him. He was going to have to drink down the wrath of the living God. And how does he end that prayer in Gethsemane? He says, Father, your will be done. Your will be done. Just resign, trusting in the sovereign will of the Father. And I believe if you're going through something like that, the more you get your eyes on Christ, the more you behold what he's like in the middle of something even worse than what you're in, that you'll be made like him into his image. Look at Christ. Follow the shepherd. Verse 33, we see Peter's response. Peter answered him, answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's not a good response. He disagrees with Jesus. He disagrees with Scripture. But I want you to think about how, how should Peter have responded? And that's honestly a hard question to answer, isn't it? Because surely you don't think he... He shouldn't have just said, okay, yeah, I guess I'm going to deny you. I guess I'm going to abandon you. Surely that's not how he should have responded. How should Peter have responded? Maybe some sort of humble pleading? Oh, Lord, please no. Oh, Lord, I don't want to deny you. I don't want to walk away from you. I want to stay with you to the end. Help me, Lord, help me. The key word there being humble. What sin should we be warned about from Peter's response here? Pride. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. Self-confidence. Paul tells us in Philippians 3, have no confidence in the flesh. Pride, self-confidence. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, let him who thinks he stands take heed Lest he fall, let him who thinks he stands, like Peter, take heed lest he fall. Please be warned by Peter's pride here. Now this story is probably one of the clearest examples of this truth. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm going to live for you to the end. Apart from him, you can't do that. I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. Nothing's going to turn me away from you. Listen, 
Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Without the grace of God, you're helpless. Without the grace of God, you're useless. These are not bad things to, to desire, to affirm, that I want to die for you, I want to live for you, I never want to forsake you. But oh, how prideful to think you can do it without his hand. You need his hand. To acknowledge and live by that is humility. Lord Jesus, apart from you, I, I believe what you said, I can do nothing. But what we see in Peter is pride. Please, please, please be warned by his pride this morning. Verse 34, Jesus is going to double down on the truth here, specifically to Peter this, this time. Look at it. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Jesus gets more specific with Peter. He looks directly at him, gets more specific about when, you know, you're going to fall away. No, I'm not. I'm going to tell you when you're going to fall away and how you're going to do it. When? Jesus says this very night before the rooster crows. That just means before the night's over. It's going to happen. How? How is Peter going to fall away? He tells him, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to disown any relationship with me. Three times before this night is over. And these things are exactly what we see happen. Look at verse 56, same chapter. I want you to see the fulfillment of these things. Because what Jesus said is true. The disciples don't believe it, but what Jesus said is true. Verse 56 says, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They left him in his lowest moment, and they fled. Specifically, verse 69, Peter's been following at a distance, not by a side, but at a distance. Verse 69 says, now Peter, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean, number one. And when he, went out, when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man, number two. He tried to save himself a little bit in number one. said, I don't know what you mean. That's kind of a safer way to deny him. Number two, I don't even know the man. I don't even know the man. You imagine these words in the heat of the moment because of fear. They're just slipping out of his mouth. They, he didn't even know. He didn't know he would do this. Jesus knew. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too were one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Affirming it with some force and calling down curses on himself. Cursed him if I say if, if I knew this, but I don't know him. Christ is literally suffering right over there. The other gospels tell us he, catch, he catches eyes with Christ. And immediately the rooster crowed. 
And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You see, what Jesus said will be fulfilled. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. But they didn't believe it. Look at verse 35, chapter 26, verse 35. Last verse in our passage today. Listen to how Peter and the disciples respond. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Even if I must die, I won't deny you. And all the disciples say the same thing. Now they added a detail here. They didn't just say, we won't fall away. They said, even if we must die. Even if I must die. Now it's a little ironic how this plays out. They claim to be ready to die for the one who is worthy of such devotion. But they don't do it. Jesus claims to be, be ready to die for those who are unworthy of that devotion. And yet he does it. Christ dies for the unworthy. They're unwilling to die for the worthy. Now don't miss an important lesson here. And there's an important lesson here about proper order. About proper order. Should you be ready to die for Jesus? And the answer is, of course you should be. Should you be ready to die for Jesus? Of course you should be. But listen, first, proper order, he dies for you. He dies for you first. This order is a matter of heaven and hell. It's not that we loved him, but it's that he loves us and gave himself for us. You see, Christianity is not all about loving God and loving people. It's what you hear so often. Love God, love people, summary of the law, greatest commandments, massively important. But listen to me, Christianity is not all about love God, love people. Christianity is all about Christ has loved you and given himself for you. This order is of massive importance. This is heaven or hell kind of stuff. Ought you be willing to lay down your life for Christ? Yes, but he lays down his life for you first. Ought you, be willing to, ought you to be willing to serve Christ? Yes, but he serves you first. Mark 10, 45 says, Christ Jesus, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you don't get this order right, best case scenario, you'll be like these disciples, claiming massive things of devotion and unable, unable to live up to what you say. Or, worst case scenario, if you don't get this order right, worst case scenario is this, that you will be on a works-based path straight to hell. It's all about my sacrifice instead of, it's about his sacrifice. But if you can get absolutely enraptured with his love first, his sacrifice first, his service first, Christ Jesus and him crucified. If you could get enraptured with Jesus and what he has done, then and only then will you be ready to lay down your life for him. As these disciples would, would later do.
Now, I want to mention one more thing here about Peter's restoration. About Peter's restoration. Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't keep arguing with them, does he? They say, well, even if I must die, I'm not going to deny you. And all the other disciples said it too. And Jesus didn't keep telling them. He just, okay. He just let it go. Let it play out. Jesus would later bring this issue back up with Peter, but, but in this subtle way of restoring him. Now, before we go read that passage of Jesus restoring Peter, I want you to think about a few things. Judas and his betrayal, and Peter and his betrayal. What are we to learn from Judas and his betrayal? We should feel warned about being so close to the things of Jesus and yet ultimately falling away. We should feel warned by that. What should we learn about Peter's betrayal or abandonment? What should we learn about his? We should be encouraged that Jesus restores sinners who fail miserably. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, I write these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sin, the wrath bearer for our sin. Encouraged. Even if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Man, Peter's denial and restoration should encourage us in that. One of the first verses I ever memorized, if I still got it, Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Listen, though he fall, though he fall, this is an encouragement, he will not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hands. We see this in Christ and Peter. And I hope it encourages your soul. Let me give you, this is a quote from, uh, Dustin preached a couple weeks back about Judas's betrayal. And I want to quote him here. This struck me when he said it. Judas is a warning for church folk, but I do want to note that not all who fall are apostate. Not all who drift from Jesus are in apostasy. Some return. In the final chapters of this gospel, you have two disciples that are zoned in upon. Both fail Jesus. One is Judas, the other is Peter. And their stories are woven through the, the end of this gospel. Judas and Peter, Judas and Peter here. The difference is that Peter is restored by the grace of God. And that's hope for us when we sin. Amen? That's hope for us when we sin. You imagine this threefold denial, and you imagine the guilt that was felt. He heard that rooster crow, and he remembered something that Jesus said, and it said he wept, and he ran away. The more you, and that guilt is rightly felt, and the more you rightly feel it, the more this restoration will blow your mind. He denied his say, he denied the one that walked with him. That loved him. No one ever loved him like Christ Jesus loved him. No one ever loved you like Christ loved you, ever. And he, did, and he acted like he didn't even know him. I 
And I want us to close out by looking at this one moment in Peter's life where Jesus takes that denier and restores him. Turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Christ has already died by this point for sinners, already risen from the dead. How will the risen Christ deal with this denier of Christ, Peter? How will he deal with him? And we see it in John chapter 21. If you've ever failed Jesus miserably, I want, to, I want you to be encouraged by this. John 21, it says in verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. And that word right there, that little phrase in the Greek, charcoal fire, it's only used one other place in the New Testament. And it's when Peter was standing around that charcoal fire in John 18, denying Jesus. And here Peter walks up on the same thing. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now that more than these, that's a reference to what Peter said. Remember it? Even if everyone else denies you, I will never deny you. Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter didn't say he loves them more than these, but he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now, you know the story. He's going to tell him that three times. Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. That's a reference back to the denial that Peter walked in. You don't have to flip there, but listen to this. In Luke's account of the denial, it says this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But Jesus says, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, insinuating Peter's going to turn away, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. So here we are, John 21. Feed my sheep. And there's this remembrance. When you return, Peter, strengthen the brethren. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Verse 16, John 21, verse 16. Jesus is dealing with Peter. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, so Jesus dealing with this denier. Listen to it. The third time, Simon, son of Jonah, son of, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Here it is, three times Peter denies Jesus. And three times Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? And on that third time, it grieves Peter. Why? Because he said it the third time. 
He's picking up what Jesus is putting down, these references back to his denial. And, and Peter says this, he adds a little phrase, and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know, at my denial, I acted like I knew everything. I disagreed with you. I disagreed with what you said. But Lord, you know everything. And you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And Jesus goes on to tell Peter how he's going to die. Peter thought he knew how he was going to die. And he says it here, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you, carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. You thought you would die like this, you couldn't do it. But listen, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, and your death will glorify me. You're going to have a death that glorifies me. Now think about what Jesus is doing here. This is sweet, sweet restoration. Jesus gives the threefold denier a chance to threefold confess his love for Christ and get a threefold public affirmation. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Your death is going to glorify my Father. There's nothing sweeter than restoration to Christ. And so I'll just close with this. Is there anybody here that needs to hear that? That the denier of Jesus, the, the one that did not stand by his side, that lied, the coward, what Christ do? In grace and mercy, he restores him to himself. There's nothing sweeter than knowing this about Jesus, that Jesus justifies the ungodly. He restores the wayward. He brings the sinner back in. Nothing sweeter than knowing that about him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for letting us see these words about our Savior Christ. And I pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, that, that just like we asked a moment ago, you would lift up our eyes to see Jesus' glory and, and majesty and kindness and mercy. God, let us be a people that are enraptured with the love of Christ. God, I pray that you would make us a people that, 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 even, that hates sin, but even when we do sin, Lord, that we rejoice in our advocate, our propitiation in Christ. Make us a people that when we do fall away, Lord, that we don't run further from you, but we run right back to you, Lord, because of your character that we see right here. God, I pray that in this church you would lift up and glorify the forgiveness of Christ, the forgiveness that's found in you, Lord Jesus. And God, help us to sing out your glory now. In Jesus' name, amen.